I am, as always, very happy to be here. And just in a minute, we'll do our uh, regular thing of uh, asking for people who are new to introduce themselves. But I would like to uh, introduce Bhante Sujata. Would you stand up, please? There we go. Bhante Sujata is, uh, and his, uh, his uh, accompanying assistant, whose name is Tyler. This is Tyler. Bhante Sujata lives in Chicago. He was born in uh, Sri Lanka. He's, uh, or he ordained in the Theravada tradition in Sri Lanka when he was 11 years old. Was that your choice, Bhante, or your parents? Your choice. Uh, did you, well, that's not a fair thing to ask. Um, unless I put it in a, uh, no, it's not a fair thing to ask however I put it, so <laughs> I won't do it. Uh, well, it's so weird not to ask. I'm not going to ask it, but I'm going to tell people what I was going to ask so they'll know what's weird. Uh, one of my very close friends is a, uh, is a nun in the Order of the Dominican Sisters of San Rafael. She's uh, uh, three years older than I am, so she's 83, I'm 80. She, or, she took robes when she, she took those robes when she was 18 years old, when she graduated from high school. And she said uh, she, um, she had trepidation about it. She knew she wanted to do that. And she, uh, she tells a story when she, te she's always taught for the University of San Francisco until her retirement quite recently. And she said, you know, even as I walked up the steps to the, uh, to the convent to enter at, after my high school graduation, I thought to myself, am I doing the right thing? And she said, and I thought to myself many times over the last 63 years, am I doing the right thing? She said, but I always decided, sometimes she thought, well, maybe I really uh, a little bit lament that I did this, but I did this, so I'm doing it. And one of the things that she and I have talked about, at, uh, at, and one of the th one reason that we're very close friends, is we uh, we share a sense of fidelity, the two of us. That uh, uh, once you start something and you make a vow about it, you really it's incumbent to do it if you possibly can. But she said, you know, I when I went to uh, to mark her twentieth. Uh, uh, a 50th anniversary as a sister, she said, you know, I still sometimes think, how would it have been if I'd chosen another path? And at the 60th, she said, I still sometimes think, how would it have been if I chose another path? But she didn't choose another path. So I momentarily, it went through my mind that, uh, but I decided that we haven't met, we don't know each other, and that's too intrusive of a question to ask. But so I'll ask everybody else who's been in a long relationship, everybody who, uh, anybody here got married? You ever think to yourself, I wonder if I could have chosen another path? <laughs> <laughs> the big laugh is because we always think about the road not taken. But I, maybe I have actually a little bit of a, um, Maybe I'm hoping that somebody never thought, I wish, I, I wish I had investigated the road not taken. 
Anyway, it's much too intrusive of a question. But I'm honored by your presence, really. And Bhante Sujata teaches in Chicago. There's a community in Chicago. And Tyler, what's your last name? Lukey. Lukey. Tyler Lukey is the president of that organization in Chicago. Does it have a lot of members? Three hundred and eighty-five means every single day. That's very exciting. Actually, thank you very much because it's very, it's very um, uplifting to know that, isn't it? I mean, who of the people who I said I made marriage vows had not a single moment of doubt? There you go. It's really exciting. Also, you might want to know that um, I often say that uh, of all of the teachers who I met or didn't meet, and I did not meet uh, Nyanapanakatera personally, although we have some uh, uh, exchange of letters that he and my husband had in the 1990s about something that was printed in the journal. Uh, that he, uh, that I often say here, that the two books, The Heart of Buddhist Meditation and uh, The Vision of Dhamma, are my two most favorite books, and I most often bring them to class and read to them because they are so lucid and so heartfelt and uh, so well written. So I really, I find, that, so I feel in, in a sense that I have not met him, the Venerable Nyanapanika. I feel like he is my teacher. So, who else has never been here before? Please stand up and say what your name is. Charlotte Ryder. Never been to this morning. Where do you live, Charlotte? Santa Rosa. Santa Rosa, good. Do you come the back way? I do. It's beautiful. I'm glad you're here. Thank you. What's your name? Well, I'm glad that you're both here. Because this is my first Wednesday morning in about eight years. Mm -hmm. So I'm really fine. Isn't it beautiful? I have the good fortune of living about a mile from here. Sometime when you go for a walk, walk in here and come in and sit. You can just walk in and sit for a while. Watch out for the turkeys. (laughs) The turkeys walk by. Someone told me that... uh, a coyote puppy walked by sometime in the last couple of weeks while people were in here and looked in the window. So, Who else do I not know, have I not met ever? Yeah. My name is uh, Jason Mann, and I'm from uh, Eastern 
spent a few retreats here, and she talks super highly of the space and community. And I happened to be working in Bolinas the last couple days and traveling to East Bay, and I looked on my phone and saw this was happening literally 10 minutes ago, and I'm like, Oh, that's terrific, Jason. That's really accidentally, because this is not on most people's accidentally. <laughs> Everybody else has been here before. Yes. Um, my name is Beverly, and I'm from Davis. And I wish I was a mile or half from here, because um, it takes a bit of planning for me to come down here. But um, this is the first time it's a Wednesday yeah, and it's hard to come from the north. It's really hard. I don't know how it is. Did you come down and come over the Richmond Bridge? Um, or did you come on 37? I came down several days ago. Oh, good. I camping at Samuel Taylor to enjoy. I thought it was going to be cool. <laughs> <laughs> then I saw it was exactly what it was back home. <laughs> So here we are. You know, Beverly, just what you said about I thought it was going to be X, but it was Y, is really, uh, in some sense, it's like the story of the whole Dharma. You know, <laughs> the whole life, we think it's going to be X, and then it's Y, and what are we going to do about that? That the, the, uh, the, the one sentence, maybe, around which, um, I've been organizing my thinking all week to talk. There's, there's a, um, one translation of the Dhammapada, which I'm going to read a little bit from this morning, says, anyone who understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. You know, we, we think it's going to be a certain way, but it isn't. And you can't do anything about it. And to the degree that we really can distinguish in our lives, this I can change, so I'll try. This I can't change. And it's not what I expected, not what I wanted. So I will make space for it. Not even that I'll like it, but that I won't be contentious with it. Seems to be the move in the mind that is the, the most crucial in between discovering, ah, unpleasant, all right, unpleasant. Seems to be the thing that is like the crucial move in the progress of trying to integrate our life as we move through it. This is happening. What are we going to do next? I find that most often I am quoting my friend and colleague, Gil Fransdahl, who teaches in Palo Alto, who says the definition of equanimity is... This is what's happening now. Let's see what happens next. I love that. I think that's so entirely cool because when, we, when I do not have that quality in the mind, this is what's happening now, and my mind is, is, is not steady, I think, oh, this means that, and then this is going to happen, and that's going to happen, that's going to happen, it's going to be terrible. And I love the idea of let's see what happens next that it reminds my mind there's going to be a next. Something else is going to happen next. And there'll be a, something else will happen next after that. And it doesn't mean that what happens next is going to be good or is going to be what I want. 
but it's going to be something else. So let's just see before squandering mind energy on distraughtness. I, I find I'm teaching more and more about that these days in the shadow. I chose that word. I saw it coming up, and I thought, do you want to say shadow? And I think I do. In the shadow of this electoral system season, where everybody's nerves are so on edge, because they're worried about what's going to happen next. We're always worried about what's going to happen next, but now it's kind of at, at really high level. So, but, well, maybe there's one more thing to say. When, when we calm down, when I calm down from being upset about something, if somebody says to me, one of my children says to me, Mom, relax, you don't know what's going to happen next. And I remember, yes, I don't know what's going to happen next. Maybe it'll be X or Y or Z, something else that I don't expect. And then you think, well, I always knew that. That's not a whole new thing, that there's going to be a next. It's always there's a next. How come you forget? In the moment of panic, we forget that there's going to be a next. In the moment of panic, we forget that things pass. I think it's always going to be this way. It's not always going to be this way. We forget very simple things. And the Buddha said, everything changes. Everything is contingent on everything else. Nothing happens out of, out of caprice. I mean, things happen. Sometimes terrible things happen, but they happen because something else happened and something else happened and something else happened. Uh, sometimes that's called interdependence. I, I like to think about it as contingency. Everything that happens, everything that arises happens because other things arose. And the fact that this happens, and whatever I and everybody else does in this moment, influences what's going to happen next. Nothing happens in a vacuum. Sometimes people who are just hearing about the word emptiness are saying, well, it's all empty. It's not empty of contingency. What there isn't is anything that isn't connected to anything else. Everything is connected to everything. Everything is changing as it's arising and disappearing. Everything is contingent. And suffering is uh, imperative in the mind that things be different. Suffering is the inability of the mind to be at ease in what's happening. I also am often quoting someone who said, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got. And how do I do with that? This isn't what I wanted, it's what I've got. So I thought for this morning for our meditation instruction, every week I try to give the same instructions for attention, paying attention in a different way. And last week we really, uh, I really was emphasizing again, letting the attention as we sit quietly rest primarily with the experience of breath coming and going. People often start contemplative practice with the experience of breath coming and going, at least for two reasons, and indeed more, but the two prominent reasons for that is that the breath is always there. Everybody's breathing. So it's a universal object of attention. And also, it's fairly rhythmic. Every once in a while, there's a long breath or a short breath. But 
to what, what in, in the sense of continual, it's mostly the same, coming and going and coming and going. And it has a soothing effect on the neurology, on the mind, however that works. People might remember, uh, you know, in very early black and white films, there'd always be the joke of the hypnotist who'd have uh, a watch on a chain and, and be hypnotizing somebody and say, watch this watch, and go ding, 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 and see their eyelids closing. So it's not a, really a good example for meditation because I don't want you to fall asleep. But it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's an example of the body relaxes. In those old movies, you see the person relax, and then their eyes close and they fall asleep. I'm hopeful that if we bring the attention to the breath, which whether or not we try to breathe, we're always breathing, and rest it in that rhythmicity, that your body will relax. And the thoughts arising will relax a little bit. The imperative of experience that meets us moment to moment, meets the awakened mind moment to moment, becomes less imperative. kind of an ease in the mind. And then it really is an immediate example of change within the sameness. It's just breath, but it's always a new breath and always a new breath. And it's arising and passing away and arising and passing away and arising and passing away. So I don't know of a more uh, apt object for discovering impermanence. Here's this breath, and here's a new breath, and here's a new breath. This one arises and leaves. So we really emphasized that last week. I'd like to add a second dimension to it this week. Uh, another teacher whose work, who I haven't met, but whose work I've been reading recently, is talking about everything that arises, particularly in meditation. He gives this particularly as a meditation instruction. <laughs> but it's very good for in life. He says something that arises that's not what's going on and it startles the mind a little bit. He said before naming it, he said in between the first awareness of it and naming, that's a thought, that's an itch, that's, a, that's an itch, that's uncomfortable, that's a thought, that's planning. Even before that is the startle of recognition, something's happening. And he says, he says to himself, Relax, relax, it's just a thought. Relax, it's just an itch. That he puts that extra relax in there. I've been using that a lot in my own meditation practice. Um, it translates easily into the life uh, I, the, the example that comes to mind is I, I was in my car with my husband and he was driving and we were driving into San Francisco. We were driving on a Sunday afternoon and we were going to see a matinee of an opera. And he said, uh, you did bring the ticket for the parking garage, didn't you? So I said, yes, of course. I remember putting it in my purse and with the tickets. I said, I'm sure. And I opened my purse and I looked through it. 
it's not there. Then I opened my wallet, I looked through it, it's not there. And I looked two more times, it wasn't there. And then it was there. It was actually there. I had remembered putting it in there. And he said, wow, did you get upset? And I said, I didn't. I, and I really didn't, because I, I said, it's not there. And I said, wait a minute, relax. Did you throw them in a garbage can? No. Therefore, they're probably in here. Just relax. And if you didn't have them, you'll go to the front desk. And you subscribe. They have your name. You'll show your driver's license. Relax. And honestly, I said, I'm so proud of myself. My heart rate at the end of this is the same as it was in the beginning. So you think that's a little thing. That's nothing. That's nothing. But multiplied by a thousand things that aren't where you think they are, or a thousand appointments that you're going to be late for, or a thousand things that you didn't get done on time, could really de-stress your life. I'm proud of myself, as I told you that story. Now we'll sit for almost well, a little bit more than a half hour. We have that time. But I'm taking this time these weeks because I really want to talk about Someone asked me about uh, the meditation, uh, the, the articles that are being published at a tremendous rate every day on the good effects of mindfulness meditation. And one of the critiques that's beginning to be um, raised about all of this research, by and large, it's good for you. Everybody says it's good for you, is it says uh, the, the group of people in this study, uh, 60 people, practice mindfulness meditation every day for 35 minutes. And maybe the 60 people who came every day to a class. And the thing is, the critique is, how do you know what they did? All you know is 60 people sat on chairs, or zafus in a room. You don't actually know what they did in there. So um, one of the things that I really wanted to do is talk about, on the one hand, if you just sat down for 35 minutes a day and closed your eyes and didn't do anything and didn't fall asleep, it'd be good for you. And if you do something with an inner technique to enhance it, to enhance the clarity of connection with moment-to-moment -moment objects, it'd be better for you. That's, that's really it. So that we have two things today. We'll sit quietly, we'll sit, sit in a comfortable way. Feel your body sitting. Sit in a way that you can sit still. Listen to the room become still. I think it's likely that the experience that's most prominent as the room becomes still and your body settles down is the sense of breath entering and leaving your body. 
I invite you to have the intention, to have the attention rest in that sensation that has to do with arising and passing away, with sensations of the breath wherever you feel them, in your chest, in your shoulders, in your rib cage, around your nostrils, in your belly, wherever it's most prominent to you. just to know rising and falling or filling or emptiness or in and out, just breath. And I invite you also to add to that the intention to notice the slight movement, startle in the mind when something else is capturing your attention, some thought, feeling. The intention to, to relax, actually to have that word arise in your mind as an instruction, relax. It's likely that what happens, whatever was happening, disappears and just your breath is there. Or you notice this feeling is arising, this thought is arising. Just naming it, being there, being it, resting in it, relax, noticing its passing, noticing the breath becoming the primary object. So we'll sit.
In a few minutes, I'll ring the bell. And usually in these last minutes, as we continue to sit together, people like to say out into the world, into the room, into the sound that people hear, uh, people that they're holding in special regard for whom they like to say special intentions, people in very good spaces, people in difficult spaces, people who came through your mind as you sat. My own sense is that as I sit quietly, not only my own particular things of the moment come to mind, but the particular things of the people who I'm connected to. I'm thinking about my, uh, my cousin's uh, granddaughter, Julia, who's had lots of school problems and uh, uh, has found it un not possible to go to school because of different kinds of psychological and behavior problems that she has, who has found the right doctor and the right regimen, the right school, and is suddenly uh, a regular eight-year-old going to school. And everyone in the family is quite relieved, so I hope that continues. about my sister who died two years ago on my birthday. She had actually been dead for two days, but she was alone, and so she wasn't found until my birthday, and today is my birthday. I'm thinking about my son, Alex, who uh, is trying to establish a new life with his wife on the East Coast.
suffering. I'm thinking about my brother Bill who has a spot on his kidney that he thought had disappeared. May he be open to the new medications and may he be well. thinking about all the people that we mentioned and all the people that we thought about and didn't mention, and all the people who everywhere are in some special circumstance we're feeling accompanied with support the situation. May we become a planet of accompaniers and consolers. And companions. And co-rejoicers sometimes. May all beings be peaceful and happy and come to the end of suffering. I think I always say some variation. I don't plan it, but I can't let this moment go. Well, I can, but I choose not to let this moment go by without saying I am consoled every week by the fact that when a voice comes from here or from here or from here or from here, and I, especially I don't know the voice or I do know the voice, and 
says something about someone somewhere who is in the special circumstance of needing support or solace for something I heard about or sometimes, sometimes that I haven't heard about. And I know that not only I feel moved by it, somebody has that situation. I don't know who's speaking and who has a situation, but I feel about it. And I assume that we all do. We hear about this situation, that situation, that situation. And I take it for granted that we all feel moved by that situation. Feels like the room is different. And that particular awareness that we are fundamentally empathic people, that we are strung for empathy, is what gives me the most hope that something will, at the, you know, this is, this is the 11th hour, it's more than the 11th hour, that something will save the world, that someone will figure it out because communally the whole world won't let it happen. I don't know that it's true that all beings, all human beings are fundamentally strung for goodness because sometimes it seems like some people have neurology or whatever or backgrounds so unredemptively damaging that they don't respond with kindness. But I think for most of us, we do. You know, and, and uh, I have a whole pile of things that one way or another make that point for me. I find it so uh, important to be able to think, in these days, particularly when the, when the atmosphere is so fraught with political antagonism and political tension, what if? To think people are not gonna let dire things happen to this planet and to everybody else. Collective people. And I, I keep thinking that we're one step away from knowing that, that, we, that we could all do things differently. You know what the image comes to mind a lot for me? You know, I'm driving along a freeway and I'm getting someplace, I'm going someplace where I know where I'm going and it's fairly important that I get there on time or I'm tired and I really want to get there on time. And all of a sudden, there's a ton of traffic. And all of a sudden, the whole traffic, as I'm like five minutes from my get off. And all of a sudden, the freeway is blocked. And all of a sudden, you get to think, oh, phooey, I, the freeway is blocked. I was just going to get off. You look at your watch. It doesn't move. You think, you look around. Uh, maybe you don't, but I look around. and. Everybody's one person in a car. As I have thoughts about it, it would be much better if everybody carpooled. They should make fuel 10 times as expensive so, nobody would, so everybody would carpool. Should be, you should get a summons or a warrant if you, if you travel by yourself. I start to think that maybe. <laughs> you ever think a thought like that? You know, that? It's a waste of fuel. We're polluting the planet. Nobody's getting home. Grudgy thoughts. And then you come around a corner and you see that the uh, up ahead of you is three fire engines and an uh, ambulance and police. And you hear another uh, siren coming up behind you. And all of a sudden you understand that there's an accident up there. 
And then by and by you creep up near the accident and you get to see how many first responders are there and what it looks like. And all of a sudden you think, um, somebody isn't going home tonight. More than one person isn't going home tonight. Somebody who thought they were going home tonight isn't going home tonight. People who were expecting someone are going to get a phone call. I, I just read a new book that's coming out about, by a Marin County author, I'll bring it when it comes out, of uh, people who've lost children uh, to death. Often, often, many of them, but not all of them, quite suddenly to some uh, accident or, or suicide, but sudden death. And the particular woman who tells the story says, I'm at home, and all of a sudden, the, the front doorbell is ringing. And it's 9 o'clock on a Saturday night. And nobody's supposed to, and I'm home alone. My husband is out of town on some business. Nobody's supposed to be coming to my doorbell at 9 o'clock at night. And on the way to the door, she's having a foreboding feeling. Who's at my door? And of course, it's, um, it's uh, a, a, a public official, it's some sheriff, who says, I have some very bad news for you. And you, know, you think about this multiplied by all the people, probably some people in this room have had the experience. I'm not going to ask, but people that either have the experience or they know someone who's had the experience. My cousin, my, my cousin in San Francisco who had one of her sons uh, was a captain in uh, the, the, the United States Army when uh, he was state, when, when the Iraq war started. And he was in Iraq. And uh, she said, I don't like to go away from home. She said, because I'm always afraid as I'm driving home that I'll come around the corner and I'll see an official army vehicle parked in my driveway. So, so I come around, I have a trepidation before I get there that there's going to be a, a car parked in the driveway. There are all kinds of uh, statements in Dharma books that say, or, or stories about Dharma teachers who said everybody should live with the awareness of death over their shoulder. That if we had that, how frail, how really vulnerable this life is. We're tough as anything. And if we don't get some uh, tragic illness due to a genetic peculiarness or a virus that comes from somewhere, for the most part, human beings last a pretty long time. They get born and they're, they're helpless for a bit of time, but then they're on their own for a long time. And this body reliably breathes, more or less. For a long time, the average death rate in uh, developed countries is quite long now compared to what it was a millennium ago. But it's also very vulnerable. You can go out in the morning and not come home. A friend of mine wrote a book called... Um, oh, so the reason I want to talk about it is that we all know that. And my sense is if we really knew it, we would behave differently. There's a line in the Dhammapada that says, uh, that's variously translated, but one of them is, 
whoever understands impermanence ceases to be contentious. I really, I really love that. My favorite chant line from all the chants that we could do is, may I be free of enmity and danger. When I first learned that line years and years ago in, in, in conjunction with uh, loving kindness practice, I actually learned the shortened version, may I be free from danger. But the longer version is, may I be free of enmity and danger. And when I first heard it, I thought it meant, may I be free of enmity in terms of like, maybe I be free of other people coming after me. The enmity of other people may I not have. May I be free of outer harm. I don't know that there's outer harm. I think enmity is an inner harm that I have. If I have enmity towards anyone, then I am harming myself. I'm closing my heart. I am making myself frightened by that enmity. I have somebody in the universe of my mind that frightens me because I have enmity towards that. I think that's one piece of, the one side of, if I have enmity in me, then I can't be really safe. I can't feel frightened. I mean, I can't, I can't be relaxed in this world. Uh, it's hard these days since I have strong political worries not to feel a lot of distaste for people who are in support of what I think would be a very dangerous outcome of this election. And how not to feel enmity towards them is a very big... My, my mind is all ready to make stories about what terrible people they are. Rather than, is, is yours not? Yeah? But I, I really, I really, um, as much as I can, first of all, I stay away from inflaming my mind. I read the newspaper, but that's all. I stay away from the television because it's inflammatory for me. Everybody has different levels. But, uh, to be able to say, I very much hope that it goes a certain way. I very much am working towards that. There's not much more I can do other than sign petitions, uh, maybe donate some more money, and vote. And all of those things I do. So I've done it. Now there's no point in inflaming my mind. The sun will come up on the day after election day, and then we'll have, let's see what happens now. Uh, but what will it take to really make the whole world suddenly aware that we're about to melt as a planet? That in 2030, it's, it's uh, estimated that the polar ice cap will be completely melted. It's unthinkable that there should not be snow on the top of this globe. I told that to a friend of mine yesterday, and he said, no. I don't think that. I think there are scientists working all over the place. They're going to seed the clouds. They're going to seed the ocean. And I hope so. I wish they'd start seeding now or yesterday, you know, because I feel bad about the species that are dying and the land that's dying. But what would really convince people to stop, get people's attention? if they really knew how dire the situation is, not just for people somewhere, but for people everywhere. I, have, I, have a, I had a friend, uh, he's not living anymore, 
who said there are savants. There were people in all religious traditions, the people who became the, the, the Buddhas and the Jesuses and the Nelson Mandelas and the Dalai Lamas, people who really saw whose, whose wisdom was unshakable. And uh, he said, uh, some people, they said, have knowledge. They, they not only have wisdom, but they have knowledge, but knowledge is not wisdom. You could know a lot of facts. Wisdom. He said that some people who know, a lot of people know a little bit, but who knows with a capital K? He said, and we go from knowing with a small K to knowing with a capital K. So you don't forget. I sometimes tell, uh, I sometimes remember at this point to tell a story that, uh, it's not a story, it's a fact, that uh, coming up on three years from now, I think it's three, could be even four, three or four years ago, well, I hope it's, I think it's three. Uh, my, husband, my husband and I had a small house that we, had in the south of France where we spent half a lot of every year for about a decade. And he took ill there in France in December of uh, 2013, I think. And he took suddenly very, very ill and he was in the hospital and he was in intensive care, intubated on the brink of death for three weeks. And then he came home and the source of what had stricken him was became obvious he had a surgery and he's actually in extraordinary health for a quite old man really in very good health he's on several athletic teams he's in very good health and it's a, it, it's really a miracle uh, and while he was there and I spent days in his room I would think to myself about how precious he was to me and how many years we'd spent together and I thought about the small things that he had as habits that annoyed me. <laughs> and I thought about, anybody knows about habits that annoy? <laughs> and I thought to myself, if he survives this, I will never again be annoyed about this <laughs> habit or that habit or the other habit. Those are just quaint, cute things that people do, those habits. Everybody has habits, I have habits. Never again will it bother me because I have my priorities straight, what's important is that the person lives. So he lived, and he's fine. And the habits annoy me. You know? But slowly but surely, they crept back into the annoyance. And in the middle of the annoyance, I think to myself, wait a minute, we figured this out. We figured this out. We figured it out so clearly that here's a person, and three or four little things that they do are annoying. There's a million other things they do that are not annoying including that they stayed with me for the last almost 65 years now. That's a long time to stay with somebody, give them a lot of credit for that. But they annoy me, those things. <laughs> how, to keep, how to keep that stuff where it's supposed to be. Look at, I could, I could say, look at that, how cute is that? Still annoys me. That's the funniest thing, but not have the energy in it. How to really, really know, how for the world to really know, not go to a lecture on global warming and think, we, that's really important, and then forget about it. Or then, you know, be really active in the 
for, for this or that or the other good cause. And then remember that I have a grudge against my cousin because she did this. There are things that I don't need to remember, this grudge, that annoyance. And there are things that I need to prioritize and really, really do. What's going to change the collective mind of the world is a thing I think about a lot. There was an article in the New York Times that was just earlier this month, and there are two photos in it, and they're photos of people, um, people fleeing a situation, refugees fleeing a situation. And you're far away, but the top photo is taken in 1940, and it's people fleeing Paris, in the uh, uh, fleeing from the north to the south because uh, France is being invaded. These are people, uh, refugees in, Serger, in Serbia, walking towards the border with Hungary. And always there have been people. John was there. Well, you were in Greece, and people had come over from Syria through Lesbos, just in the spring. In this very same place in France where um, my husband and I had lived intermittently over 10 years, which is a beach town in the south of France where there are lots of tourists now who come from all over Europe because the beaches are nice and the weather is good. And on, uh, the, uh, on one of the beaches, there's a sign that says, on this very spot was a uh, refugee camp for refugees that had fled over the Spanish border in the late 1930s, fleeing the war in, they were people who were opposed to the monarchy, and fleeing from Spain because they were being caught and and uh, it made the point, somehow there were refugee camps there, but also the point that the French were not hospitable to them. That they did have refugee camp, and they were safe, and they didn't get killed. But also, in a museum right nearby, there are um, uh, signs from that era, propaganda signs, angry signs, that say, um, uh, uh, les Espagnols mangent le pain de les Français. The Spaniards are eating French bread. They've come to take our stuff. They were not hospitable to them. There's another sign about a half of a kilometer away on the edge of a wharf. It's a, a, a monument, actually, with a big um, brass explanation for the monument. The monument is modern art, so it's not representational. And it says, from this spot in 1492, the remaining 13 families of Jews in Catalonia set sail from here looking for a new life. They were run out of Spain and out of France. I don't know where they set sail to. But the sense that all over the world people are on the move, always needing to go from where they aren't wanted anymore or can't live anymore. The only way that the global warming is going to stop or the war is going to stop or the use of all of the 
natural resources in the world is if everybody stops seeing the borders, stops making borders, stops building walls. There's a line, every time I go to the opera, I come back. This is, a, this is an opera uh, playbill. If you've been to the opera, you know a play, playbill. And uh, in a couple of them, as those of you who come regularly know, uh, the back cover of them gets all scribbled up. Something happens, the, the, the opera is unfolding, and pretty soon somebody says some very dharmic line that I need to write down because I need to tell you about it. So I am always sitting on this side of my husband because that's his hearing ear. So predictably, in the middle of first act, I'll reach across him into his pocket and get his pen. And in the dark, I start writing down. Anybody saw Andre Chenier? So it's, it's amazing. The story of André Chénier was a poet in the time of the French Revolution. And uh, so he is in this play, and it's a play where he's the, he's the hero. But there's another hero, and it's a story about, that begins in the salon of nobility, or very, very aristocracy, that's what it would be. Very wigged people, very extraordinarily dressed, and a major domo, a, a man who's the, the head of all the servants there, who uh, is uh, singing to the audience, I've been a servant here, I grew up in this house. My father, an elderly man, comes creeping on the stage who's still doing a servant chore. He said, that's my father. My father's father grew up in this house a servant. I grew up in this house a servant. The, we, we are just servant classes forever. And he's behaving in that way. And uh, all of a sudden, and people arrive for a party, all wigged and dressed, and everything is very proper. And at some point, some revolutionary act happens. Someone busts in the door, bursts in the door, and uh, does something to break up this party. Uh, Vive la Revolution. I don't remember exactly that point. But he, in that moment, gets really moved to break out of his being trapped there as a servant. And he joins this other group of people and leaves, says, I'm out of here, and joins the revolution. And the whole thing, the whole plot continues, and he joins the revolution. And the revolution is, actually, they behead the king and queen. The revolution is winning. And those of you who remember your history remember that there's a period called the Reign of Terror afterwards, where the revolutionaries, having won, can't stop themselves. And all kinds of stuff is happening. And he sings a line, and he says, once it was a pleasure for me. He becomes a head of those people and a main judge for them. He says, once it was a pleasure for me to move with people, move among people who shared so much hatred. So he leaves to be part of this inflammatory mob he does that, and he said, once it was a pleasure for me to be part of people who shared so much hatred. Now I see it's another thing that holds you captive, the hatred. He said, I, was, I used to be a slave of that, and now I'm a slave to this. He says, uh, wait, wait, it's a good line. Ah, 
I'm still a slave, he says. I'm a slave with a new master. So it's a very important thing to say. You know, you even have a good idea. And that it's, it's two things. You can have a good idea, but you can get swept up with any ideology and run with the ideology and not be thinking straight. Really, it's the, the, one of the things about Buddhism which I really thought when I was hearing about this is, uh, came up as so important uh, is the concept of near enemy. Uh, that things could look like a good thing, but uh, they're actually masquerading, uh, and they're actually confusers of the mind, like going out and working for a just cause is a good thing. Getting hysterical and losing a sense of justice or righteousness is not a good thing. Uh, after the election, I'll tell you a story about uh, the other side of that, uh, you, can, you can get too wound up in anger. You can get too, you can get blinded by exuberance and wild joy. Uh, we'll see if after the election we'll have exuberance or wild joy. <laughs> but I did look ahead, and I do know that I'm here on November 9th. So the 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 the, the, the sun will rise, and we'll be our same group, and we'll talk about. It. But the idea of Whatever arises in the mind that confuses it, exuberance in the mind, I hurt somebody's feelings very badly. Eight years ago, on the day after the election, well, here I am telling you the story now, and I want to read you this other poetry, but I hurt somebody's feelings very badly. I, I was here on the morning after the election in 2008, and... Uh, we were all very excited. I came with all the newspapers of that morning, and somebody said, is it appropriate for us all to do yay and hooray? Because, you know, we're kind of modest in our behavior here. We don't do yay and hooray. <laughs> and honestly, I have a, I have a respect for, I, I do really try to understand my friends who vote ideologically different from I do every four years. No, it's a hardy year now. Actually, my friends who do are not voting that way this year because, anyway, that's another story. But I left here and I went to, uh, among other things, I went to the needlepoint store. I picked up some needlepoint that I had just had framed. And I was chatting with the owner of the store who I'd met many times before and discussed needlepoint with over the years. And uh, she said, why don't you start a new one? And I said, you know, I just might. I'm so excited. I do very huge needlepoints. I said, I might, you know, I'm just so exuberant about the uh, election. I'm just in this great mood. I'll, you know, I might just start a new project. She said, you're in a great mood. She said, I, you know, uh, you're happy about it? I said, I'm thrilled. She said, uh, I thought I was going to kill myself. Oh. And, I, and I heedlessly said, what? And she said, well, I'm frightened to death. I think I might leave the country. I said, what are you talking about? She said, well, do you know who uh, Mr. Obama's friends are? And I, again, incorrectly, said, well, do you know who Mr. McCain's friends are? And <laughs> we had some words. And then, anyway, and I was going out the door, so I said, listen, we'll talk about this another time. And I went out, and I felt terrible. I felt instantly terrible. 
you know, that the, that the operative word that that woman had said was, I thought I was going to kill myself. That's the operative word. And at that moment, I should have stopped. I wished I had stopped. I didn't. Should have is ridiculous. I didn't. I wished I had stopped and said, listen, let's talk about it a little bit. I think it'll be all right. Anyway, I got my, I was hugely humiliated that I'd made a scene. And then I'd have upset this woman. I didn't make a scene. No one was there but me. I upset her. So I went home and I phoned her and she didn't answer. And then I thought, oh, see, I upset her so much. She went home, she closed the store. <laughs> and, and I made a, uh, but this again shows you that the mind makes up stories. So then I left a long message on the phone about I'm so embarrassed about what I did. That was so heedless. Please forgive me. I should have thought. When you said I'm so upset I'm going to kill myself, I should have really sat down and explained to you why I think it's going to be all right and that some, I should have asked you what you were afraid of and maybe we could have talked about it. And I have a cousin in San Francisco who always votes the other way from me and I would like to talk to her and uh, we could have a really open talk but she won't talk to me. This <laughs> an entire long story and then I leave my phone number and I hang up. And she calls me back after a while. And she said, I was so upset about what I said. I'm so glad you called. And I, you know, I'm so glad you left your phone number. And I really, it was so incorrect of me to explode at you. And that, uh, a big, long conversation on the phone. And I thought about it afterwards. And some, for some of you, it's not the first time you heard that story. Because I think about exuberance as being a clouder of the mind as much as rage is a clouder of the mind. Anything that's a clouder of the mind. Panic is a clouder of the mind. Exuberance is a clouder of the mind. Uh, hatred is definitely a clouder of the mind. That I have to really know moment to moment, how is my mind right now before I make any action that's coming out of what I think is clarity and might not be. Here he says, once it was a pleasure to move around amongst people who had so much hatred. And now I find I am a slave. I'm a servant to the hatred, just the way I was a servant to the aristocracy. I have a, I'm a slave with a new master. And the end of that long aria, which is very touching, is he said, having enemies is just completely always wrong. Making other people wrong is completely always wrong. And he says, what we need to do is with one great embrace, we have to love all mankind. You have to imagine that this is a man with an enormous basso voice, tremendous, and he is a big guy with a big chest, and he's facing the audience, and he says, with a great embrace, we have to love all mankind. I think to myself, there is dharma all over the place. You can dharma all over the place. You can watch the... The, the soap operas on the television, you can go watch the movie, you can go to a movie, you can go to the opera, you go anywhere you look around, everybody is saying the same thing. With a great embrace, we should embrace all mankind. That's the only answer. So then, I was thinking about the different people who can keep their heart open under different situations. And not, not by accident, I was thinking about this little book called Who by Water. And uh, next week is, uh, in the Hebrew calendar, it is Rosh Hashanah. It's, Yom, it's the beginning of the new year. And one of the things that one does uh, as a preparation for the new year in the whole last moon of the year before 
is you think to yourself, you're meant to if you do it, think about what have I left uncorrected in my life? Do I have to apologize to somebody? Do I have to talk to somebody? Do I have to make amends to somebody? What reparations do I have to make? And the thing, most of all, uh, is there anything left in my heart that I have to purify before the new year? Do I have to really open my heart to people? A lot of people we have to apologize to, they're dead already, so we can't apologize. But in my heart, could I apologize to them? Can I really look? When I have had very, very long, mm, I haven't had tremendous feuds with anybody, but I've had long animosities in my mind. Or people that I just had a uh, feeling about, not warm. And what I find, one of the people, you know, in the whole of all the people that I know, the person I used to know, that uh, after a while, I got to have an unwarm feeling about for some habit that that person had. And I recently had the word, I'm not close with that person, I recently had the word that that person is now in hospice care. And all of a sudden, the thing that I didn't have the warm feeling about is like the stupidest thing in the world. You know, I'm thinking about, here's this person at the end of their life. I know their children, I know their children's children, and I have nothing but good feelings about them. And I think about what was it in me that didn't let go of that particular thing. As a matter of fact, I remembered a particular kindness that I had experienced from this person. I really enjoy this part of the year in terms of um, self-inventory um, because you know now I don't have that anymore and that person has not yet passed over. And I'm glad because in my mind, at least, now I'm thinking, why just in my mind? I actually know where they are, and they're in hospice, and I think they'd be pleased if I visited. So I think I'll do that. I just decided that. I just realized that. It wasn't enough to just do that. So this is a book called Who by Water, and it's a part of the liturgy for Yom Kippur, and a part of the liturgy is you don't know whose time is going to be up in this year. And it's, there's a very formal poem that begins, who by fire, who by water, who by war, who by famine, who by this, who by that. We don't know who's going to die this year. My friend um, and my teaching colleague, Ronica Batsnik, who teaches specialized mindfulness, she teaches mindfulness of eating, particularly for people who have eating disorders and difficulties. She's a psychologist. She lives in the East Bay. She spent uh, a couple of years living in Thailand, uh, 2003, 4, 5, uh, studying with a particular teacher, living in a monastery there. And uh, on her way to moving in to where she was living, she spent some time meeting the uh, Chabad rabbi in Bangkok. And the Chabad rabbi in Bangkok called her after the tsunami and said, would you come down to Bangkok? The thing with Chabad all over the world is um, 
it's, it's actually, it looks like a missionary organization of Jews, but they're not actually looking to, uh, as far as I can tell, that their mission is not to convert people to Judaism. It's to convert people who were Jews to really returning to their religious affiliation, because there are more of them who are not than are. Anyway, they do very good things. They, they do non-sectarian things. They're an aid organization all over the world for travelers who are lost or for communities in difficulty, and also for Jews traveling in remote places. So I always think about a Chabad rabbi in Bangkok or one in Bangalore. I think, oh, they haven't got a community. They haven't got a Jewish day school for their children, but they elect to go there. So they're kind of heroic people. Chabad rabbi called Rana and said, Dr. Rana, we need a psychologist to help us here. We have a huge overwhelm, and many, uh, all the Thai resources are here, but they're mostly tourists who survived the tsunami, but lost other people. So we need someone to be here. And she went down and stayed for a week, and it's impossible to read. I mean, I, I read it three years ago when she wrote it, and then I read it in the last few days again, and I and I and I I thought I don't remember reading this. Okay, I don't remember reading this at all. I think because it's so hard to read that you read it and you put it out of your mind. I know I read it because it's underlined, and I also remember that I read it. She said, "This is one little piece." Um, she said uh, uh, that she was talking to some parents who were quite hysterical who had come over from the United States because their daughter was missing. Not long after, uh, and uh, they were particularly distraught about um, that nobody had found her body, and she, they, they went to morgues. She was in morgues all week long looking for people. Really very overwhelming description. And she said... Um, I stayed in their room with them for as long as I could, but there was no word from um, embassy officials. And uh, not long after, she said, the parents received their daughter's death certificate from the same embassy official. Oh, she had called the embassy and said, please send over some tranquilizers. Do you have any medicines there? Send some tranquilizers. I've got two hysterical people. They sent, so somebody brought tranquilizers and she gave them each a pill. And somebody, an embassy official, called her and scolded her for giving them a tranquilizer. Said, do you realize we could get sued for that? I mean, she said, the very same embassy official. Called, the, called them and uh, gave them the, the death certificate. The mother became hysterical and the father began screaming, go get Dr. Rana so I could help his wife. The staff member with information about finding bodies, never called. When we spoke later, she calmly told me, everything is under control. And I thought to myself, under control? She couldn't be serious. If life were under control, the first noble truth, there is suffering, would be irrelevant. We could stop the flow of time, control nature, avoid traveling. We could combine our minds to be peaceful and our bodies not to die. This is not the case now or ever. Nothing is under control. We just think it is. You know, when we realize that, it's all free fall. We don't realize. I remember for years being struck with a story about 
somebody's saying to um, Kierkegaard, this is the Kierkegaard joke. Kierkegaard was a Danish philosopher, right? And he was not known for funniness or wit. And, uh, but the Kierkegaard joke is that he is said to have said, a colleague came every Wednesday and they met, and the colleague was leaving his house. And the colleague said, I'll see you next week. And Kierkegaard is said to have responded, yes, I'll see you next week if, as you leave my house, a tile does not fall off the roof and hit you on the head and kill you. And as you cross the street, a carriage does not get out of control and run you over. And if you're not stricken by an illness between now and next week, everything is out of control. Everything is contingent on everything else we don't know. And if we really knew, anybody who understands Contingency, anyone who understands impermanence, ceases to be contentious. This is a poem by Billy Collins. And it's a, it's a, it, it, it takes its starting line from the novel Lolita in which there's a line that says, my very photogenic mother died in a freak accident, picnic, lightning, when I was three. It is possible to be struck by a meteor or a single-engine plane while reading in a chair at home. Safes do drop from rooftops and flatten the odd pedestrian, mostly within the panels of the comics. But still, we know it is possible, as well as the flash of summer lightning the thermos toppling over, spilling out on the grass. And we know the message can be delivered from within. The heart, no valentine, decides to quit after lunch. The power shut off like a switch. Or a tiny dark ship is unmoored into the flow of the body's rivers. The brain, a monastery, defenseless on the shore. This is what I think about when I shovel compost into a wheelbarrow. And when I fill the long flower boxes, then press into rows the limp roots of red impatience, the instant hand of death always ready to burst forth from the sleeve of his voluminous cloak. Then the soil is full of marvels, bits of leaf like flakes off a fresco, Brown, red pine needles, a beetle quick to burrow back under the loam. Then the wheelbarrow is a wilder blue, the clouds a brighter white, and all I hear is the rasp of the steel edge against a round stone, the small plants singing with lifted faces, and the click of the sundial as one hour sweeps into the next. I love that poem. I have it with a marker in it. You don't know from one moment to the next. I love that line about the heart. No valentine decides to quit after lunch. You don't know. You don't know what's going to be the next minute. I, you know, I, I, uh, I won't read more than two lines of this. Because I, I bought this new book because I, I, I read a review of it in the New York Times that said that Adam Fitzgerald, who wrote, who wrote it, uh, is uh, hailed by the New York Times as a new and welcome sound in the aviary of contemporary poetry. And he's the director of this and that, and uh, he teaches at New York University and Rutgers University, and he lives in New York City 
and is a young-looking guy, and all these important poets said he's great, and I do not understand it at all. <laughs> at all. And I, you know, I, but I get the individual words. This is an ode to New Jersey. Certainly not the state with the prettiest name. Even so, your once metastasizing malls and lots, your vegetable kingdoms and finicky punctured sky of pale pollutions hold some attention still. Long Island, a pancreas whose biggest head is BKU, a kidney, compacted graffiti of the letter S, whose veiny highways, turnpikes, gibbering tunnels yields yet the city's trash some passage home. You know, I understand individual words, and I actually even have a sense of what he's saying. Anybody has a sense yeah. of... You get it. All right, what do you think? Basically, you have to accept it with the warts and the wonders, and it's attached to things, and it's not separate. It's New Jersey. It's a flavor. There you go. Who got that? And it's alive. Huh? And it's alive. And it's alive. There you go. So it's... Uh, thank you very much, because once you said that, then uh, it's a pancreas, and Long Island is a, is a kidney... I get that, you know. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. So it's not that I don't understand the words, and I get a hint of it. And maybe in poetry, you're just supposed to get a hint. It's not supposed to make sense. Routinely, I don't read a poem in the New, York, in the New Yorker and get it. I routinely read it and don't get it. But I get the individual words. And my friend Norman Fisher, who's a poet, he gets it. But he said, you know, you don't get it. You just get a... You get a transmission. So I was thinking, I was thinking just before the end of last week's class, I said, next week for sure I'm going to talk about the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. And I have seven minutes left to do it. And I will. <laughs> right now, because this is what I want to say, and then you'll see because why I am doing that with that. There are all kinds of uh, uh, derivatives of the Dharma that the Buddha taught. The, the Theravada path the, the, is based on the canon of what the Buddha has said himself to have said and in, in, in China and Tibet and Japan where there were other religious uh, backgrounds when the Dharma arrived. What we have is and each of them a further development of the Dharma, and I, I venture to say a further evolution of the Dharma in the West here. But what everybody agrees on, or what everybody says, well, if you take away all the different editions and interpretations, is the meaning, is the centrality of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path, that life is suffering, that from the beginning it's suffering. I struggled for a long time to get uh, that maybe it really means it's um, could be it's full of challenges and full of not challenges. But even the not because I didn't want to say the whole thing is a challenge. But the whole thing is a challenge. Doesn't mean that sometimes wonderful things don't happen to you. But when they happen to you, you want them to last. So you have a new challenge. There's nothing that happens that doesn't have a challenge with it. 
you have it, then something happens. Uh, the woman who said to me with her new baby that was wonderful and lovely, she said, it's terrific. She said, and I, I, uh, I never knew that when you had a baby, you mortgaged your heart for the rest of your life. You do. You mortgage your heart for the rest of your life. My children, my, my sons have gray beards. I can't imagine how they got gray beards, but you know, they're coming on, one of them 60, the other coming on 60. That's what happens, and they get sick, and they have this, and they have that, and you care about it forever. To take life is to get the whole thing about it, and with what Zorba called the whole catastrophe. You get the up and the down, and, and you have to deal with it moment to moment. That's the first noble truth. There's no not dealing with it. You don't get a day off. That's it. Second noble truth is it gets, it could, suffering is the imperative in the mind that it should be different than the way it is. And in brief, it can't be different than the way it is because it is the way it is as a result of anything that's ever been in any moment. It's, I can't stand this. You can. It's, it's just what's happening. Mostly you even stand it. You know, one of the things that I uh, also read a review of last year, last this very week is uh, a new book called uh, a new book called Wave by Sonali Deraniagala. I'm not sure how to say this, but that this book opens on the morning of December 26, 2004. The author is on a Sri Lankan beachside hotel with her family. And by the end of the ch first chapter, she is pantless, half drowned, bleeding, bruised, and the five people she loves most in the world are dead. Her two children, her husband, and her parents, because they all drowned in the wave. And you think to yourself, you can't do it. That, that's like really, really over the top. And she did, it's not like she rose above it. It's now, um, it's now eight years later, and she's written the book about the harrowing journey of her mind from then till now. So it's not, you know, the, the, so sometimes there is that the mind has a tremendous imperative that things be different. You can't stand that they're the way they are. That to be able to say, this isn't what I wanted, but it's what I got, is one thing to say words, but there's some ways in which the mind cannot get that for a long, long, long time. It's not that it ever gets it and says that's the way it is, but that it gets it and it says, you know what, I could write a book for people who have the worst happen to them, to know that you have the worst and then something else happens. But the idea of, of the second noble truth for me is much more than dealing with the worst. It's moment to moment, don't make it worse. That's the instruction in life. This is what's happening. What's called for from me, and can I do it? Let me do it. Moment to moment. But it's been, I, it, it, my, my sense is that the fourth noble truth, the third noble truth, which is important not to skip over, is it's possible to have a, a mind of peace. It is a possible human thing to have a mind that says, this is the way it is. Let's see what happens next. That's a really tremendous piece of news, that it's a possibility for human beings.
And that the fourth noble truth is a practice path. And if you go up and see the wheel, that we, the prayer wheel, practice path has eight parts of it. And three parts are having to do with ethical behavior, moral behavior, how we are with other people. And three parts of it have to do with developing mindfulness, developing compassion. Mindfulness, knowing what's happening moment to moment and responding out of clarity, which is sustained by concentration, which is really steadiness in the mind so it doesn't get knocked way over, and which is directed by the third component of the mind training, which is wise effort, which is really choosing moment to moment. This is the road that leads to suffering. This is the road that maintains the peace. And choosing peace moment to moment. When I was a child, uh, when I was a child, really uh, before major highways and when people actually took pleasure trips and went riding, uh, you know, took a ride into the country or a ride for a weekend to Massachusetts because it took a long time to get there, you'd, you'd drive into little towns and they'd say, this is Bedford, welcome to Bedford, New, New Jersey, New Hampshire or New uh, Connecticut. And they'd have uh, a sign that would say, no disturbing the peace. <laughs> and we don't see signs that say no disturbing the peace anymore. <laughs> but it would be great to have signs all over the place, no disturbing, because we have, we, our peace is continually disturbed. We know that we have 24-hour news cycles with, with a screed underneath, with a crawl underneath to make you more disturbed. But no disturbing the peace. And then it comes to the, what are either the two uh, parts of the path at the end, seven and eight, or one and two, whichever way you want. Some lists begin with wise understanding. Really getting it. We are born into suffering. So we better understand that because there's no way out but forward and how are we going to do it? And then wise intention, which is the aspect of it that says, if I'm going to do it with ease, then I have to have non-greed, non-hatred, and non-delusion. And I have to be practicing them all the time. So, they, that, uh, so that the understanding is, if you had a little bit, an inkling of the truth, of understanding, you'd have at least a beginning of intention, which would put you on the path of wise action, wise speech, wise livelihood. And to maintain it, you'd need wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. Sometimes the path goes that way. Sometimes the two end of it, after the moral training and the mind training, are they end with, okay, now we have a little bit of understanding and really uh, augmented intention. I really want to do this better. So that puts you back to the beginning of the list. So you re-undertake it. So it's not a list that gets you from there to there. One of the things that I began to say many, many years ago, I hope not in a frivolous way, because we think of a path that goes from here to there. And I'm thinking about the Eightfold Path as going from here to here, but really here. The, the, people ask the Buddha, are you a normal person? And he said, no, I'm awake. And we aren't. We are people, but we are different degrees of awake. When I said before, we could go from small K understanding to large K understanding. I think that's it. We go from a little bit of understanding and more understanding and more understanding and more understanding. And you don't finish. You don't finish. You don't get off the path. You don't graduate. I think it's an eightfold circle, not an eightfold. I, I think it's an eightfold circle, not an eightfold path, because any part of the path depends on any other part of the path. 
Matter of fact, I think it's an eightfold dot. I don't think you go anywhere off it. But where you go is more and, more and less awake, moment to moment, and that the intention grows, I think. And um, just this week, I, 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 I actually needed to prepare an essay for the lion's roar. It'll come out in a couple of months um, on the, uh, talking about intention. And I talked about intention as part of the Eightfold Path, but I talked about it as not being the crucial part about the Eightfold Path, but I talked about why every single path part is the crucial part of the Eightfold Path. They're all part of each other, and they're all part of it. And my own sense is that, um, you know the story I told about, I reach over into his pocket and I take that out because I think there's a dharma. The more that I, I really get it, that that's not good for you, that you know I'm good and they're bad, uh, the more I see it in my life. I think that's true of all of us. The more we see every story as being that, that uh, if I think to myself, oh, so-and-so, I'm so annoyed at them for having X, Y, and Z, and I think to myself, really? You want to keep that going, that annoyed? You want to really befoul your own mind? You know, oh, here comes one of my family. I could just tell them that story about how annoyed I am. It's, really? Do you want to do that? You want to mess up your own mind? Or you want to just put that down? The last thing I'll say to you is the Buddha said, there are things that you pick up, the mind picks up, that's like you pick up a coal because you think it's, a, it's not lit. But if you pick up a coal from a stove and it's hot, you drop it. You pick up a thought like, you drop it. And that actually becomes like the practice. Preserve the peace. Preserve the peace. No disturbing the peace. <laughs> so here, here again for the last time is hostilities are not distilled through hostility regardless. Hostilities are stilled through non-hostility. This is the unending truth. Unlike those who don't realize that we're here on the verge of perishing, those who do, their quarrels are stilled. Isn't that good? May everything that brought you here and goes out with you that is the part in you that really hopes for inner peace that directs all of our outside actions so that our families and our relationships and our world are more and more filled with peace. May that stay with you until we meet again next week. May all beings be peaceful and happy come to the end of suffering. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.